let me say just a couple things to begin, and then I'll pray. Um, one is, I, I want to be really clear that um, what my aim is here in any of the answers that I give. My aim is to accurately represent what Scripture is teaching. I, you know, if, if, if I'm going to tell you something that's a matter of opinion because Scripture doesn't give us a clear, you know, this or this, I will try to remember to say this is my opinion. Um, but again, my goal is to share what Scripture is teaching. There's nothing intended to be directed at some particular person. That's one of the reasons I like the fact that we're texting these is because then we can, we, can, we can deal with these questions as questions. It's an issue, it's a topic, and we're addressing that. We're not addressing a particular person uh, per se. Um, also, obviously, some of these issues are, are kind of volatile, kind of. Um, very emotional, as I said earlier. And I think one of the big reasons is that our tendency to get those three threads of desire, behavior, and identity intertwined. Um, but we'll, we'll seek to be in everything uh, as respectful and as gracious. Um, but, you know, we know that there's some difficult issues here. Um, also... Oh, I had a thought. What happened to it? Mm. Yeah, it'll come back if it matters. Um, oh, I wanted to tell you, too, uh, I have an article here. I mentioned Sam Albury. I quoted him a couple times in the, in the message. And I've made some copies of an article. And I'll put those in the back. Um, and w One per family, one per household. Um, and if we run out, um, somebody get a piece of paper and, well, just, yeah, like, if we could have, like, tick marks of how many, how many more copies we need, uh, I'll make some later, and then we can have them next week or down in the office if you want to come. The, this article is entitled, Where to Find Hope and Help Amid the Sexual Revolution. Let me just read the uh, opening paragraph or two. It's no secret that the Western world has undergone a dramatic transformation regarding issues of sexuality and gender identity. 20 years ago, the widespread acceptance of gay marriage seemed largely unthinkable. Even just 10 years ago, issues of transgenderism were far from mainstream consciousness. Many in our culture have seen these shifts as an unqualified good, a needed sign of progress toward a more just and inclusive society. But for many Christians, these changes have been bewildering. The world we thought we knew has been pulled out from under us. The Christian view of marriage as being between a man and a woman and the basic assumptions that were all made as men and women may not have always been championed by our culture, but it was at least seen as a legitimate part of Western thought. Now such views are increasingly seen as an actual danger to society. How did we get here and what should we do about it? And then the rest of the article answers those questions. So, um, yeah, Greg, if you want to just put those in the back. And... Okay.
Okay. Uh, the other question, the, I, this is what I, I remembered now. Um, so the, 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 the basic sideboards for this particular Q&A time uh, is primarily intended to be questions that have arisen through our study of 1 Corinthians. Um, if you ask a question outside of 1 Corinthians, or it's not directly raised, that's great. I'm not opposed to that. And depending on how our time goes, um, I'll be happy to try to deal with that, but I'm going to give priority to questions that come out as a result of the, the series first, okay? Does that make sense? And I'm not necessarily expecting that all the questions deal with the sexual issue only, although that tends to be one that, that we have lots of questions about. Okay, are we ready, Tyler? All right, here comes number one. My kids have gay friends, and we love them, of course. How does one address their identity issue in a non-confrontational way? Yeah, um, I knew this would come up. The, uh, you, you can see here in, in, in the way the question is asked, which is totally legit, but uh, you can see how there is this, this issue already uh, in, in the, the threads getting intertwined. Okay, so for someone to say or to come out and, and embrace an identity, I am gay, or we say of a person, they are gay, we are basically making that an issue of identity. That's who they are. They are gay, which means... Well, the, the, so when, when we're talking identity then, um, that's not an identity that Scripture, uh, that, that's not the language that Scripture uses to talk about these things, okay? When it comes to sexuality in Scripture, we're talking about desires and behavior. We're not talking about identity, okay? So to, to, to address this question this way, we've immediately open that we've, we made it an issue of identity. Now, obviously, if you're talking to people who, who are doing that, you know, you can't just come out and say, well, you know, it's wrong for you to use that as a term of identity. Um, but perhaps, perhaps as part of the conversation, um, we could raise that issue. You see that what we're doing here is we're identifying people by a sexual orientation, a sexual inclination, possibly even behavior or whatever. And, and, and these are just extremely challenging. Okay, so now these issues are addressed in Sam Albury's article. So I'm sort of gonna punt and say, you know, read the article, read other stuff. Okay, so there's, there's two authors in particular I would recommend. You go online and uh, search for articles by them. One is Sam. Alberry, A-L-L-B-E-R-R-Y. I also want to recommend Rosaria Butterfield. It's a lovely name. Rose, yeah, uh, two R's, there you go. Sam Alberry and Rosaria Butterfield. And uh, you'll find several articles by both of them on the website called The Gospel Coalition. The Gospel Coalition. Uh, Sam, as I mentioned, is a pastor 
who has, uh, I, I heard a talk by him where he said that ever since he can remember having romantic or sexual feelings, they have always been uh, feelings toward men and not women. And uh, he is a, a solid believer in Jesus who is living life as a celibate man, uh, seeking uh, to fully ground his identity in the person of Jesus and what Jesus says about him. So I admire him very much, and he's got some great articles on these topics. Rosaria was a uh, professor at a major university uh, who was fully immersed in uh, a a same-sex lifestyle. And um, she came to Christ as a result of uh, a couple, a pastor and his wife, loving her and uh, having her in their home repeatedly, having lots of conversations. One of the things she mentioned is that she thinks what may be our most important tool in uh, relating to our culture these days is the tool of hospitality and of having people in our homes regularly and having conversations. And when we say conversation, we mean it. It's, it's a two-way dialogue, which involves listening. He, uh, Sam points out a proverb that says, oh, what is it? The one who answers before they've listened is, I can't remember the exact quote, but stupid does probably a fair job of <laughs> foolish, whatever. It's uh, foolish to answer without listening. So uh, getting back to the question, Of course we love them. How does one address their identity issue in a non-confrontational way? I'm not sure it's possible to address it in a way that doesn't, because at some point you you have two different worldviews. You have two different perspectives. You have two different fundamental commitments to how we answer the big questions of life. I would suggest that you do not say, hey, let's, let's talk about this, bam, you know, it, it's going to need to be as part of a question. It's going to need to be as part of a dialogue. And uh, one of the things Sam says when he talks to people is he's found that when he goes on a college campus, for example, and he's going to be speaking on issues like this, he will meet with students who are usually part of some kind of a club or something that L- identifies as LGBTQ or something. And as he's talked with them, he has found that very often one of their main emotions is fear because they're afraid he's coming to trash them. They're afraid, they're afraid he's going to just be hostile and, and they're afraid that as a result of whatever he says, they're going to experience hostility and aggression and uh, even violence from other people. So he is very careful to meet with them and to listen to them and listen to their fears and listen to what's um, on, on their hearts. And he'll just often say, I would love to hear more of your story if you would uh, care to share that with me. So um, conversation. And at some point, we have to realize that the main issue is Jesus. And the main issue is um, what he says about us and, and um, how he wants us to know him. Um, it, it's important to realize that God's will for us, for all of us, is to bring us into relationship with him and live a life 
as, as he defines life. So it, that question is not mainly what's your, what's your sexual preference and what are you doing about it. It's mainly about who God is and what he says. Now, this obviously is a germane question. Uh, but I don't know if you can be... I, the, the, the statement, we love them, of course, that's, that's, uh, that's powerful. Love is very powerful. The thing we always have to keep in mind is that love also tells the truth. We, we address, I addressed this in a message several weeks ago. How do we define what love is? Who defines what love is? How, how do you love your friends who, uh, let's use a completely different issue, who are involved in some other behavior that Scripture identifies as ultimately destructive? Okay? What do you say? How do you say it? These are very difficult conversations. But, you know, it, yeah, I care about you. Um, obviously, the, the, the level of relationship is going to be huge. And, and let me say this, too. A lot of it has to do, in my mind, of whether someone is professing to be a follower of Jesus or not. If they're professing to be a follower of Jesus, the conversation looks one way. If they're not, and they don't necessarily have any interest in Jesus, or they don't even know anything about him, that conversation looks very, very different. But I can't give you, um, you know, the particular words. It's, it's going to depend on the relationship. It's going to depend on what that person is thinking. And so it's going to involve conversation and, and listening. Um, you know, we've, we've not, Jesus didn't call us to be the morality police, Right? He calls us to be witnesses. What's a witness? A witness is someone who testifies, gives testimony about what they know. And what do we know? We know Jesus, and we know what he has said. And we are to give that testimony in a gracious, life-giving way. I'll tell you this, if people sense that our main objective is to somehow control them, or, you know, be angry toward them, then that conversation's not going anywhere. But the other, the other extreme is that we're so concerned about um, having that person like me that I don't ever say anything that, that would offend them potentially. And, and that's, the other, that's the other extreme to avoid. Because at that point, you know, if, if I only say what I say because I don't want that person to be mad at me, I don't want them to disapprove of me, I don't want them to think I'm mean or I'm hateful or I'm whatever, that sort of self-preoccupation, I don't think that Jesus defines that as love, does he? Because at some point, I've got to be more concerned with the person I'm talking to than with me. So... What's that conversation look like? I don't have any easy answers.
The, the question is, uh, to repeat it, uh, the Supreme Court has said now that uh, same-sex marriage is, is um, legitimate. It's, it's the law of the land. Um, and <clears throat> I don't know that they said this, but some would say to speak out against it is to engage in a hateful, be identified as a hate group. So what should we do? Well, um, I think the, the short answer is we speak the truth in love. I mean, I, I'm not going to organize a picket, um, but as I think has been clear as we've gone through this series, it's, uh, it's important that we say, this is, what's, this is what Scripture teaches and this is what Jesus affirmed. And uh, as I mentioned in this one, there is that assumption that if you speak to these issues, um, you must be motivated by hate. How do we show people that isn't true? It's probably not with an argument. It's probably how we live. So if we want to prove to people that we're not motivated by hate, then that means we better talk about these issues in a non-hateful way. And we better relate to people who see it differently in a way that could be characterized as life-giving, hope-affirming. But no, we, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, we can't accept definitions of marriage and of healthy sexuality um, that are that contradict what he told us. So we looked at Matthew 19 uh, two weeks ago where Jesus refers to Scripture, uh, specifically from the book of Genesis, about uh, God's creation of the first man and woman and their relationship, and he uses that to settle a question about marriage. And in doing so, he's pretty clear. Um, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Jesus' definition of marriage. So. Um, so that was a statement um, that basically uh, oftentimes people are looking for an argument or they're geared already to have an argument. Uh, I just read something about that. Um, I, f- I think actually it was Sam Albury saying something about that. He said, one of the things we have to remember, no it wasn't, it was another guy, I can't remember his name. He said, we probably have gotten a misperception from media coverage of these issues that everybody's an activist and everybody's angry. He said in his experience that's not true, that a lot of people are just genuinely wrestling with some of these things. And they're not necessarily trying to change society other than to want to be treated with decent, you know, genuine decency and fairness. Um, So that's another, I think, uh, point of conversation. I think I'm going to refer to this next week a little bit. Um, 
how you deal with somebody who's hostile and angry is very different from how you treat somebody who's genuinely wondering and questioning and concerned. Um, so I think, again, it's important to listen and find out, you know, is this someone who actually wants to have a conversation or is this someone who just wants to have an argument? But I, I think we should be careful not to assume that everybody's in that camp. Uh, he quoted, he was having a conversation with somebody who identified as uh, gay, same-sex attraction, and he was very interested in Jesus. And they were having a conversation about Jesus, and, and the, the Christian stopped and said, I'm curious, what's, what's attracting you to Jesus? And he said, Jesus treats me like everybody else, uh, like he treats everybody. Um, he, he puts us all in the same boat. Um, he said, I've been told now for years by my friends that I'm somehow special. And when we do things, everybody needs to celebrate what we do. He said, Jesus doesn't treat me that way. He says, I don't want to be special. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be, you know, I just want, I, I just want what, you know, and, and Jesus treats me that way. That, that was really, um, I think, affirming that, uh, you know, Jesus says to all of us, that was part of the message today, we all have things we have to say no to. And he doesn't, you know, categorize us and treat us. It's we're all given the same invitation to believe in him. Uh, let's do we have any more on the screen? Yeah, I, I see you. Let's go with the screen question. How does this church feel about old people living together but not married? Well, how the church feels about it is of secondary issue to how Jesus feels about it. Um, and as I said, when we defined marriage, when he defined marriage, the, the, the definition is fairly straightforward, and there's a lot of ways to go outside the boundaries, outside the guardrails. So cohabiting, if that's a sexual relationship, that's outside the boundaries. Now, is it possible that there could be a situation that is not um, for sexual or relational reasons, but is economic or whatever? I, you know, those are things that people have to, to work out. But living together sexually without marriage is something that should be changed. Um, you know, get married or don't cohabit. Um, and... You know, sometimes people come to Christ in an already established household arrangement. And I think it's important to realize that, you know, there can be, uh, Jesus doesn't expect us to have our, you know, sometimes people think, well, I got to get my life completely cleaned up before I can, you know, know Christ. No, you don't, you know. If you want to use the analogy of fishing, Jesus catches us first and then he cleans us, right? So, um, <laughs> uh, and all of us are in the process of still being cleaned in Christ. Now, you know, if I was talking to somebody who was, you know, a bank robber, I was like, well, if you come to Jesus, you're going to have to quit robbing banks, 
He's going to have to do that. Okay? If you come to Jesus and you're involved in a sexual relationship that's outside of God's boundaries, you're going to need to deal with that. What does that look like? Well, I don't know. Maybe at first it would look like, well, we need to talk about this relationship. We need to figure out what we're going to do. You know, we, we can't just keep on having a sexual relationship outside of the boundaries if we're going to follow Jesus. So what, what do we do? What are the steps we need to take? Maybe that'll happen quick, maybe not so quick. What if there's children involved? You know, the, the changing in the household situation can be very uh, challenging, but I would say, well, if you're a couple and you have children, then let, let's, let's get you married. Let's make that, let's understand what that commitment involves, and let's, uh, let's take care of that. Anyway, I don't think being old has anything to do with it. I'm not sure that makes a difference. I don't, I don't know that Jesus ever said that. Damien? Right. And believers. Because um, when I consider a lot of these questions, and it's brought up a lot of thought for me, too. I mean, you know, Wayne and I have a set of friends. They're an A couple. They're married. And we've been discussing, you know, our friendship with them and, and talking with them. And they are definitely not believers. Right. If, if your question is, do I know what you mean? I, I think so. Um, I think what you, well, is, the, is there a difference? Is there a difference in what I say and how I say it to someone who's a professing believer in Jesus and someone who isn't? Yeah, I think so. But the difference is not one of truth. The difference is one of, well, what truth is appropriate in this situation? Um, again, there are lots of places where the world's view of where the moral boundaries are is very different than what Jesus says. Okay, as believers, we're, we're called to live within Jesus' moral boundaries. But that doesn't mean those boundaries are irrelevant for other people. They're still relevant because they're still, and again, get back to what love is. Love is helping people to do what's genuinely in their best interest. So I still need to be careful that I'm not doing things that would somehow communicate the message that, yeah, well, that's totally not right for me, but it's fine for you, no problem. Um, so some, sometimes if we're crossing the line and it becomes one of celebrating, you know, one of the things Paul says in Romans chapter 1 is uh, people doing wrong and giving hearty approval to others who do them. And that that's, that's, that's sin too, to... Basically say, you know, you go. 
and there, th that's in a lot of areas of life. That's not just sexual issues. It's a lot of things, you know. It's like, it, you know, if, if we're talking about uh, ethics when it comes to political candidates or something, you know, is lying okay? Well, no, it's not. And as a Christian, I know why it's not okay. And, and if I'm talking to a believer who thinks it's okay to lie, I'd say, uh, no, it's not. But I'm not going to say to unbelievers, yeah, lying's fine. But is that going to be my, the first thing I say? Probably not. I hope not. You know, it's going to be a relationship. But see, some of these things come, come up in contexts where the question is, is this right or is this wrong? If I'm asked that question or I have an opportunity to speak into it, then I need to say something about what the Christian gospel says about that. That doesn't mean I'm necessarily bringing the topic up. But you can think of how divided our country is on the topic of abortion, for example. Well, um, you know, it's kind of interesting. If we were having a national debate about slavery, what would that debate look like? If we were having a national debate about wife beating, you know, would we say, well, personally, I'm opposed to beating your wife, but hey, I'm not here to tell you what you should do. That probably sounds like a major cop-out to me. I'm personally against owning slaves, but if you choose to, hey. Oh, no, we're talking about a person's right being, you know, they're being depersonalized. They're being dehumanized. So things that Christians believe do have implications into how society lives, but we've got to realize, okay, it's not my main job to be morality police, and, you know, you're right. The main issue with an unbeliever is them coming to know Christ. But they're probably going to have to know some of what that looks like. You know, Jesus said, count the cost. So if I'm talking to a couple in a same-sex relationship that's sexual in nature, uh, and if I'm talking to them about what believing in Jesus looks like, it would probably be a little irresponsible to not at least bring that issue up in some way but as lovingly, as graciously as possible. The passage this morning talked about wrongdoers not inherit the kingdom. How does that track with the fact that as Christians, that we as Christians inherit but are still wrongdoers? Okay. Um, as Christians, we are repentant wrongdoers. That's different than wrongdoers who are not repentant. The passage is talking about wrongdoers who are continuing on a pathway of doing wrong that's characteristic of their life and they don't see it as wrong and they're not willing to uh, deal with it. As Christians, when we do wrong, we're supposed to deal, we have to deal with it. That's what I was trying to say when I said we're, we're never to say, well, yeah, I'm a believer in Jesus and Jesus will forgive me no matter what so I don't have to deal with this sin thing. Well, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. We all do. Now, I don't know what sinful desires you're prone to. I know what ones I'm prone to. And when I said this morning, some desires are really hard to say no to. I hope that resonates with everybody. You know, don't you desire, you know? I mean, 
I would really like my desires, and, and some have changed. Some have changed. I think some desires can change right away when a person comes to Christ. You've probably heard those testimonies. And there's other desires that don't change right away, and it's a lifelong process. Uh, the Bible uses the term, put them to death in Colossians, which means separate yourself from them. Well, yeah, some of these desires are pretty tough to get rid of. When somebody cuts me off on the freeway, I still desire vengeance. Vengeance is not okay for a follower of Jesus. If I take vengeance, and you can do that, you know, in, in subtle ways with, with people in your own household. Somebody hurts you, you can hurt them back. <laughs> and if you're married, you have learned sophisticated ways of how to do that. You know, you know how to hurt your spouse. You know, because you know them better than anybody probably. That's not okay. And so what I wouldn't want is for someone to say, well, I'm a Christian, but I can go ahead and hurt my spouse all I want because Jesus will forgive me. Baloney. You cannot. And at some point, if a behavior is consistent enough and there's no repentance, that's supposed to raise the question, am I really a member of God's kingdom? My biggest fear for church-going people is people who think that because they prayed a prayer when they were eight, it's all taken care of, and I can just go ahead and live any way I want. No, you can't. You're not saved by praying a prayer. You're saved by a faith connection with Jesus. And I was going to use this in the sermon, I forgot. A great line from Pastor John Piper. He says, the same faith, the same faith that leads, that, that uh, the same faith that trusts Christ for the forgiving of sin, trusts him for the fighting of sin. You can't separate those. That's what James means when he says, what good is it to say you have faith but no works? That's not real faith. So I tell you, the thing that scares me to death is people thinking they have faith who don't. You know, remember uh, Jesus in John 7. Many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And he said, I tell you the truth, I never knew you. That's terrifying to me. So... Um, if we're a Christian, we are repentant wrongdoers. Now, are you doing wrong you don't know about? Probably. I hope as soon as you find out about it, though, you say, oops, I can't keep doing that. That's one of the roles we have with one another, by the way. Hey, brother, you need a hug and you need a kick in the pants. Which do you want first? Next. Oh, my. As a Christian wife, what scripture and truth can you share, shed on the overwhelming and unspoken expectation to replicate the image of a porn star for our spouse to be attractive within marriage? This is not something he has expressed or imposed, but personally causes struggles in my own self-reflection 
identity as to what is perceived as enticing to my spouse. This reoccurring problem is probably rooted in insecurity. However, I desire to be free from it because of the problems it creates. I hope to learn to be more secure in who God made me instead of chasing the materialistic outward appearance our society declares true beauty to be. Well, I think the question sort of answers itself in that um, you recognize that it's not your responsibility to uh, conform to a falsehood. Um, I suppose it's a deeper question, though. When we talk about roles uh, in marriage, husband and wife, by the way, you know, I was thinking after the message a few weeks ago where it said, okay, God's got these guardrails of, you know, sexes, you know, inside the guardrails in his marriage, uh, mar- definition of marriage. And I got to thinking, boy, I, I hope somebody doesn't get the idea that as long as you stay within the guardrails, everything's going to be great. You know, all you got to do is make sure you keep sex within the guardrails, and it's all going to be just amazing. Uh, no. What it's saying is going outside of the guardrails is not okay, but that doesn't mean everything in the guardrails is hunky-dory. And, you know. So there's still a lot of learning and growing to understand Husbands, how to love your wives. Wives, how to respect your husbands, okay? Um, Demanding. Demanding is never loving. So it's very interesting, and and one thing we have to keep reminding ourselves, when when, uh, Scripture gives the commands to husbands to love their wives, he's not, that's not a command of the wife. So wives... Scripture's not authorizing you to make your husband love you. That's between him and Jesus. That doesn't mean you don't ever say anything about it, but you, you need to realize God has not given you a license to control your husband and determine how he loves you. Okay? Same is true of husbands. You know? And there have been, I know of husbands who have been guilty of this. Wives, submit to, show respect to your husband. That's given to wives. It's not given to husbands. Husbands, you are not authorized. Okay, so let's just make it broader. Nobody's authorized to make anybody do anything. Unless we're talking about parents and young children. We're not licensed to make anybody do anything. So... um, I'm assuming that part of the question here might be that the husband has had or continues to have uh, involvement in pornography, perhaps. Uh, Where did he get these expectations of what a porn star would do, except from pornography? Well, husbands, if you've got an addiction to pornography, that's outside the guardrails, and you need to deal with it. And uh, by the way, down in the men's restroom and maybe the one up here, there's little cards uh, advertising for men-only groups. And I can tell you something like that is necessary to, to beat that 
You know, when I talked about this morning about some desires are so strong, it's very, very difficult to say no. That's one of them. So if a guy's gotten addicted to pornography, or women too, pornography is not just a, a men's addiction thing. It can be a women's thing too. Um, that's got to go. That's got to be fought. So um, as a wife, if your husband is addicted to pornography, you have a responsibility to say to him as respectfully as possible, I love you, and I want our relationship to be healthy, and what you're doing is undermining that, and I will do whatever I can to help you beat that, but you have to deal with it. So if that's going on, that's an issue. Um, but you're right, you, you talk about it as being a, possibly an insecurity problem. You know, let's face it, we've got a problem. We have a problem in our culture. It, we are so schizophrenic, right? So on the one hand, we're teaching our young men that, by golly, they better respect women and not treat them as sex objects. Hashtag me too. And at the same time, we're publishing and buying Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition and in advertising and in TV shows and in movies, we're saying it's all about treating women as objects of sexual lust and gratification. Okay, those, you, can't, you can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. And we know what the biblical perspective is. Women are to be respected as persons. And sex is about much more than performance, appearance, and all of those things. But those are, yeah, those are big issues. Uh, I don't know that I've answered the question or not. Maybe some of those things would be helpful. Bob? Yep. I guess, I guess, um, yeah, I guess the question, I'm, the question was, can two people live together and not be married? Um, I would question why people would want to live together in a marriage relationship effectively without being married. Now, I know what some of the answers will be, and most of them will be about finances, and most of them will be about things like insurance and inheritance for the kids, I question whether those, those issues take precedent over making a covenant commitment of marriage to one another. So I'm going to stand by the statement, if people are living together in a relationship that's essentially what marriage is supposed to be, they ought to be married. So, And it, yeah, it's certainly true that uh, you know, if we're talking about the sexual area, Someone who's 
Yeah, but nothing's tip. You know, you can say, well, most old people this and most old people that. There's always exceptions. Yes. Yes. Barbara's sisters are too old to do anything with her but that. Yeah. And I said, I said, Uncle Eric, I said, you never get too old that you don't need examples or people that are. I said, I'm going to hit that age or that time in my life that I still need somebody to look at that I can look to that can help me maybe go through those things. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. you. You've reminded me of something that um, I'm kind of embarrassed that I haven't said it yet. What is the Christian view of marriage anyway? Okay, so we've talked about, well, you know, it's when a man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, so that's the definition of marriage. But what is marriage for? What is marriage for from the Christian standpoint? Paul makes that very clear in Ephesians 5. God created marriage to be a picture of Christ and the church. So the main reason Christians think about marriage and act about marriage the way we do is not first and foremost to satisfy our needs. It's first and foremost to reflect a relationship of Christ and the church. That's why we do marriage, ultimately. And so, we as Christians, you know, uh, Hebrews, thirteen four. The author of Hebrews is writing to believers, and he says, "Let marriage be held in honor among." all. That doesn't mean honored just by marriage pe- married people. It means be, be held by single people, divorced people, widowed people. We're all to honor marriage. Why? Because marriage is not ultimately about us. It's about Christ and the church. And that's, that is the huge uh, both privilege and responsibility then that Christian married people have is to portray, you know, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. Oh, really? Wow. That's pretty demanding, isn't it? You know, so husbands, all you guys that are married, how many feel like you got that nailed? But see, isn't that, that's what we're called to. We're called to love our wives in a way that reflects God's love for his people. That's why marriage ultimately is beautiful. You know, so much of our culture has gotten into, and if you want to read a book on this, read uh, Tim Keller and Kathy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. And he's talking all about what marriage is for and showing us that it's ultimately a God thing, not... uh, Traditional societies see marriage as a way of, uh, you know, 
It's a, it's a family thing. Keep the family line going. It's, it's all about this. Western society, it's all about personal fulfillment. So which is it? Is it all these traditional obligations, or is it about personal fulfillment? Neither one. Marriage is ultimately about a covenant relationship with God. And marriage is to reflect that. So um, part of it is our understanding of what marriage is for. Discussion about gender is complex. Amen. Is it ever okay to identify as a gender other than your sex or to still identify as your biological gender but take on characteristics of another gender? Where's the line? Um, we haven't really talked much about this. This is going to come up in chapter 11 because the uh, Corinthians were seeking to eliminate gender distinctions, and Paul has some things to say about that. So this will come up later. Um, some of us are, are still, what do you mean? What's the difference between gender and sex? Um, well, great statement. It's complex. Um, our culture now has basically defined gender as, um, as, as, culture, as a cultural construct. In other words, our culture decides what, what, what the female gender looks like and does and, and what male gender is and all these things. And it is complex because we tend to associate things with gender, with masculinity or femininity, that the Bible doesn't necessarily do. Okay, so let's take a real, real simple example. Um, clothing. Some clothing we associate with women, some clothing we associate with men, okay? Does the Bible tell us what masculine clothing looks like? Anybody? I'm not aware that it does. Well, what does feminine clothing look like according to the Bible? So there is, there are cultural aspects to this question, okay? But what we're going to see in, in 1 Corinthians 11 is to do this, to intentionally take on the cultural aspects of the, the gender that you aren't, that's not considered with your biological sex, in order to portray yourself as that is outside the guardrails. So part of the problem in this discussion is we're not talking about absolutes. We're talking about stuff that's culturally relative and what, what men do, what women do typically, and all this kind of stuff. And like most, like most issues that our culture is confused about, there are elements of truth in what they're saying. Okay. I was bullied a lot in school because I was not masculine enough. I was not into sports. I was not into, you know, whatever. I didn't play football, okay? And in my high school, if you didn't play football, you weren't a real man. I was into drama. I had an artistic temperament. Well, we, I got called names because of that, okay? 
because I'm not man enough. Well, so that if we as a culture then say, okay, men play football, they smoke Marlboro, they drive big four-by-fours, women are artistic, they like knitting, I don't know, I'm less clear on this side of the chart. Whatever. Okay, is that, how Bible, is that how the Bible defines masculine and feminine? No. No. So our culture's got a point when it says culture can be oppressive to people if they're not fitting the cultural definition of manhood or womanhood. That's wrong. So as a church, we should... Help people see that being a man doesn't mean wearing blue. Now, that's one piece. The other piece is for somebody to intentionally take the cultural stuff that is in that culture regarded as manly, and they're intentionally taking that on because they want to portray themselves and, and uh, identify themselves as that opposite sex other than God created them to be, that's a problem. But there's going to be lines here. You know? Is it okay if a boy doesn't want to play sports? Is it okay if he wants to take a dance class? Is it okay if he you know, doesn't want to go fishing? Yeah. Is it okay if a girl wants to Ride horses and, you know, I, girls often do that anyway. Um, <laughs> go, yeah, what if she wants to fish? What if, you know, we, we, I, I have friends whose daughter, when she was young, so did not want to be a girl. She so wanted to be a boy because the boys have all the fun, she thought, and she prayed. And she was upset that God wasn't answering her prayer. Now, today, there are families who would say, oh, well, maybe you really are a boy. Um, I don't think that, well, I know that's not the right approach. The, the right approach is to say, well, honey, there's nothing that says you can't fish or whatever, um, but God did make you a girl, and that's a beautiful thing. And today, she fully embraces that. Most kids do. They grow out of it. I, what's going to happen now that parents are demanding that people start referring to their child with the opposite uh, sex, gender, pronouns, and catering to their... You know, we, we've got another family in the church whose daughter uh, really wanted to be a dolphin and prayed that God would turn her into a dolphin. God's not going to answer that prayer. Because God made her a, a woman. So, um, with the Methodist controversy, how will our church answer the probable question of LGBT plus membership leadership? Well, again, okay, here we go again. Notice. Bring us all up to speed on what the Methodist controversy is, so people don't miss. 
No, I can't because I have not read extensively on that. I don't know. Can you? Okay, yeah, so, but, but will you notice, please, what do we mean by LGBT plus? What do we mean? Are we talking about desire? Are we talking about behavior? Are we talking about identity? If, if the question is, can people who experience same-sex attraction or experience profound discomfort with their biological sex but want to follow Jesus and want to be obedient to him, can they be a member? Can they even be in leadership? The answer is, of course. Can someone who practices sexual behavior outside of the guardrails be a member, be involved in leadership? No. Can someone who identifies and says, I am gay, I am lesbian, I am bisexual, I am transgender, be a member, be in leadership? Well, that's where I have to back up the truck and say, well, what do you mean by that? Do you mean you're experiencing attraction to people of the same sex, but you're committed to following Jesus and his, his definition of marriage, and will you hold marriage in honor, and will you abstain from sex outside of the guardrails? It depends how they answer the question. A good amount of my friends want to read the Bibles but don't know where to start. Besides Matthew, Genesis, what book should I suggest to them? Wow, okay. Um, besides Matthew, Genesis, that's where I was going to go. Um, well, are we talking Christian friends? If we're talking Christian friends, um, my answer is one thing. If, if we're talking Christians who don't, or people who don't know Christ and are just getting interested in the Bible, I'd probably answer differently. I would start with the four Gospels. I would start with Matthew, but I would also read uh, John, probably, uh, the book of Acts, to read about the early church. Um, maybe a letter of Paul's, you know, Philippians is often a good one to start with. Uh, help me out here, Tyler. You're the expert on this topic. Bible reading plan for beginners. Yeah, if you have uh, the U version app. If you don't have it, you should get it. It basically gives you access to all the, all the major Bible translations. And they have on that app different reading plans, all kinds of different reading plans. So if you don't have that on your phone or iPad or I don't know what else that works on, but that's a great way to get a good reading plan. Yeah, one minute. Let's One more. We got one? <laughs> what does it mean that we will judge angels? Um, I think in that context, judging is being used in the sense of ruling over. So that we are told that we will share, if we're a believer in Jesus, we will share in Christ's rule over his kingdom. 
I don't know everything that that involves, but we are going to, he's going to delegate ruling authority to us in some way, and then somehow it affects angels, and I don't know any more than that. Is there another one? It's not a question, but a huge thanks for it. <laughs> so appreciate it. Well, thank you. You're welcome. All right. I think I forgot to pray when we started, and I'm, I'm mortified. Uh, so let me, let me address that omission now. Father, I'm sure these aren't the only questions, and I'm sure that uh, some of the ones I attempted to answer, I didn't necessarily answer as well as could have. I could have, uh, or uh, maybe I did the best I could, but it wasn't that great. Um, So will you help all of us? um, Help us bring our questions to you. Help us bring our questions to one another, and may our heart's desire be to know how you would answer these questions. Lord, guide us. Some of these are really hard. Uh, especially the ones that involve kind of in our society being faithful to you and at the same time loving and caring about people. Um, you want us to, to be truthful and to be loving. And sometimes, Lord, how those fit together is really tough. So help us, Lord. Thank you uh, for our time together and uh, help us trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.